I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you make your way there in your Bible, we are especially thankful and blessed to be able to fill the pulpit this Lord's Day and for the next two upcoming Sundays. And the plan is for these three Sundays as a whole that we would spend some time looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The message this morning is entitled, The Missing Ingredient. Our focus this Lord's Day will be 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3. And it would be appropriate for us for the, to ask for the Lord's help as we come to study his word as well as with our other eye to look to the Lord's table as we look and enjoy to celebrate that this Lord's Day. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, it's appropriate that we have just sung, so now we pray. Show us Christ. Where else can we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. And you've given those words to us in this most perfect book, the Bible. We look to it now. We place ourselves beneath your word and beneath its authority, asking that you would teach us and instruct us and help us as we seek to understand this passage and as we also look forward to observing and remembering the sacrifice of your son for our sin at the Lord's table. So help us, Lord, to preach Christ by Christ, all for the glory of Christ. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, the missing ingredient. A phenomenon has come to us from across the Atlantic, I'm not sure if you are aware of it or familiar with it. It goes by the acronym G-B-B-O. Great British Bake Off. This competitive show has no doubt sucked in millions of viewers. No doubt some of you as well. And on this show, amateur bakers are gathered together where they seek to compete and seek to impress judges who themselves are accomplished bakers. Each week has three challenges. The signature challenge where these amateur bakers seek to pull off their own homegrown, tried-and-true family recipes. They then have the technical challenge where the judges will give to these competitors very challenging recipes, often with very few instructions, where these competitors are then tested by their own inherent knowledge and ability, and they seek to create these dishes. And third and finally, there's the showstopper challenge, where these competitors with their ability, their skill, their talent, they seek to bake and produce that which is required. Each week, of course, a competitor is singled out and receives the award of star baker. 
And sadly, like any competition show, one contestant is eliminated. And as the group is slowly uh, lessens, one then is finally crowned as the ultimate winner and competitor. Part of the draw of Bake Off, if you've ever seen it before, is simply watching the vast variety of items that these competitors have to bake. Items like cakes, breads, biscuits, pies, puddings, pastries, tarts. Sometimes even employing particular themes like having to bake a recipe all the way from the old Victorian era or even going further back to the Tudor era. Each recipe unique, each having its varied preparation, and no doubt all sorts of ingredients. And as you watch, again, amateur bakers, you're impressed with their technical skill, their artistic ability. And to think how it all can come apart if one ingredient happens to be missing. Same is true in the life of Christians, as well as life within the local church. That as we gather, there can no doubt be various levels of maturity, skill, ability, experience, and giftedness. And yet, if one ingredient is missing, all can begin to unravel. A real mess can be made. What might be considered a strong church, if this ingredient is missing, suddenly can become stunted, then hindered, then consequently become weak. And you might ask, okay, what is this ingredient? It's love. The very thing missing in the church at Corinth When we come to 1 Corinthians, we come to a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church plagued with many problems. Paul had spent significant time with the church at Corinth. You read in Acts chapter 18, while he's on his second missionary journey, Paul spent 18 months laboring, discipling, teaching, and shepherding the congregation in Corinth which is itself an amazing thing when you learn a little bit about the background of the town, that in the ancient world where immorality abounded, here even was a town renowned for its immorality, and yet the gospel breaks through, sinners are saved, the church is born, the church grows. Paul spends time there, and yet not that long after his time in Corinth, he gets word that there's problems at hand. You read through 1 Corinthians, it appears that he receives a report from a lady named Chloe and those in her household. And thus Paul writes to respond very directly, very practically, to a whole host of issues. Are you familiar with them? All that's going on in the church at Corinth? There are divisions, each member gravitating towards their favorite Sunday preacher, 
There's immorality, immorality that's abounding in those in the church rather than dealing with it biblically, they're tolerating it. There are those in the church confused about the issue of marriage or divorce and remarriage or even singleness. What are we to think about liberty in the Christian life? What freedom I have now in Christ? Or here, beginning in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, the issue of spiritual gifts, specifically sign gifts. Again, this is an early letter that Paul writes. It seems that in some measure, uh, still in operation, are these sign gifts that interestingly we would add later on, later books in the New Testament suddenly grow very quiet about, silent about. We would argue because they've ceased. But at this time, still in operation, these gifts given by the Holy Spirit intended to build up and edify and encourage the body. Rather, we learn they're being selfishly exercised, abused even. Believers in Corinth are seeking to one-up one another with their giftedness. Thinking and believing selfishly, my giftedness is more important than yours. It's in the midst of all of this mess that Paul will write to address this very issue and yet right at the heart of it, the very antidote to this problem, the missing ingredient, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. Itself one of the most majestic chapters in all of the Bible where Paul will devote himself to extol the virtues of biblical love. And as we said, for the next three weeks, we'll walk through most of the chapter. Verses 1 through 3, the focus being the prerequisite of love. Verses 4 through 7, that we'll spend two weeks on, the portrayal of love. And then, of course, on your own, in your own study, verses 8 through 13, the permanence of love. That's what's going on. That's what Paul seeks to address. And we'll be quick to add, Twin City Bible Church may not be the church at Corinth with all these same issues at hand. And yet, the same danger exists for our church as it existed in the church at Corinth. You ask, what do you mean? Hear what John MacArthur says. He writes how tragic that in many churches, love, which is basic to Christian character, does not characterize the membership or the ministry. He writes, it's easier to be orthodox than to be loving, easier to be active in church work than to be loving. Friend, the danger exists that if you and I are not careful, this ingredient can go missing and mark it and mark it well. A church will become loveless when its members become loveless. In other words, it begins on an individual level. 
If you and I are not careful, and if love begins to be absent in our life, even if just one member in the body grows loveless, how that can begin to infect and affect the whole body. Let us then this morning hear these words and even test ourselves by these words as Paul summons the church at Corinth and by extension all Christians to this most important, indispensable Christian fruit, that of love, which he will say at the end of chapter 12, it is the most excellent way. Let's hear these verses this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me. Nothing. As we consider the verses this morning, Paul in these three verses will provide three illustrations that if you're taking notes, we're going to turn into three equations. Like a math lesson this morning. What happens when love is subtracted from our lives? Three equations to teach us that very lesson that you and I, again, on an individual level, can be so careful that we're not missing this ingredient. The first equation we find this morning in verse 1. We'll give you most of the equation as we work through the verse. It's simply this. Speech minus love. We'll wait just a moment before we give you what that equals. Speech minus love. Paul first is going to direct his attention to the issue of speech, but we'll also point out as you move into verse 1, Paul, like a wise shepherd, with all the issues at hand in Corinth, rather than pointing the finger and accusing them and scolding them and telling them, Get it together, guys. He rather shifts his way of address into the first person, employing himself as an example, helping these Corinthians understand even the Apostle Paul is not beyond these verses. It applies to him as well. We'll also point out by means of the grammar, Paul here is quite deliberate you'll notice how he uses conditional sentences, conditional statements, a very specific type, that which is hypothetical. That's important. 
What Paul says here, though he uses very real-life examples and expressions, he's not describing what's actually possible, but rather, by means of the grammar, as he builds his argument, he's trying to paint the picture hypothetically. If you were to attain this level of giftedness without having love, where you'd find yourself. Now again, in verse 1, Paul directs his attention to the most pressing issue, that which the Corinthian church was especially obsessed with, the giftedness, the ability to speak, you see, with tongues. He says specifically the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. And if we were to go back to the church at Corinth, at this time when this sign gift was still in operation, what is this? Is it like what we often see taking place today, where suddenly someone in quite a a static state begins to issue, and out of their mouth comes forth that which sounds like gibberish? Is that the speaking of tongues that he's speaking of? No. Rather, Every time this term tongue is used in the New Testament, every reference is always to that which is a known language. Think back to the book of Acts. That in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when believers suddenly, as the Spirit descends, begin to talk in tongues, What is it that they're speaking in? They're speaking in known languages, different languages. Why? Simply evidence that as Christ has come and the gospel prevails, that the curse at Babel is beginning to be undone. And so, the church in Corinth, seeking to speak with this giftedness in tongues, That which is a known language, again, the term glossa, that's what it means. They're misconstruing this. They're totally missing the point of having this gift. So Paul then, employing himself as the example, focusing upon the issue of speech. He paints this picture. He says, oh, church at Corinth, if I had the ultimate linguistic ability. The tongues of men, in other words, if I were fluent in many languages, so fluent, all the correct intonations, all the correct accents, that if you were to hear me, you would think, well, surely that's where you come from. Paul says, oh, if I have this ability to be so fluent in the tongues, the languages of men, but not only that, remember how he's speaking hypothetically here? He says, what if I didn't just have that ability, I also have the ability to communicate in the tongues of angels. Angelic eloquence that my ability to speak, that I have this ability with celestial communication. Again, not that this is an ability to be sought, 
You don't find evidence of an angelic language in the Bible. Again, the grammar, he's speaking here hypothetically. He's upping the ante. He's saying, what if, Corinth, I can speak with all the tongues of men and the tongues of angels? What a distinguished gift. What a deluxe gift. In the church at Corinth, as they would read this and hear this, they would begin to salivate. Oh, Paul, if only I could speak like that. If only I had that ability. And you know it's not too different for you and I today now, is it? That gift has ceased, that sign gift, but certainly speech hasn't. The world today, those even within the church, you and I can become so gripped and so fascinated with the ability to communicate. Watching and observing one's facility with speech, how elegantly they speak, how fluently they speak. If only I had that vocabulary If only I had that ability to turn a phrase, that ability to be so direct, so winsome, even at times employing sarcasm, but so gifted at that. Aesthetically pleasing speech. If only I had that ability, like that other person, to teach more clearly, to explain more memorably. I mean, think, friend, All the podcasts we listen to, all the clips that pop up that we watch and we sit for a moment and we think, wow, he or she can communicate. And inside there can begin to be this envy. Only I could communicate like that. You know, this is something that even preachers can wrestle with. I'll add, by the way, as I said to the first service, I've been living in these verses this whole week. If only I had the tongue of Luther or Calvin, the tongue of Bunyan or Brooks, the tongue of Spurgeon, the tongue of MacArthur, the tongue of Lawson. You and I can be so focused on the giftedness with speech. Yeah, here's the equation. Paul says, speech minus love. What love is this? It's not any and all types of love. It's a very specific, a very biblical love. Love which is agape love. Love that is defined by God demonstrated by God, love that's going to be explained and developed in the next few verses, love that we would simply put it this way. It's an affection expressed in action. An affection expressed in action where you and I, patterned after God's love, delight in a person, whether they're worthy of the love or not, and act upon it, and seek to do good, and seek to benefit one another. 
That this very love that, again, God perfectly displays, that God has shed abroad in our hearts, Paul says, if this love, this very biblical love, is missing, absent, out of office, out on vacation, that if there is speech minus love, what does it equal? Nothing. He says, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong, going back in that day, it wasn't some sort of musical instrument. If anything, it might even be that which was used in the Greek theaters, this acoustic vase used simply for amplification. He says, I'm just become, if I don't have love, my speech is but an empty echo. It's hollow. Or, he says, I've become a clanging cymbal. Again, not like modern percussion. No, back in this time, you would find this employed often in heathen worship. Metal plates that would be hit together as these pagans would grow in their frenzy, worshiping Bacchus or Dionysus, hitting together, and this sound would be produced, and it would be a quite a repulsive sound. In fact, the term clanging, just like what we see today in English, so you see the same in Greek, it's onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it is. Alaladzo, alaladzo, alaladzo. Paul says, if I have speech and yet love is absent, what's the result? What is it equal? Shrill, screeching, Ugly, smashing, roaring sound. Think, friend, like white noise. That without love, even with this most elevated speech, if love is absent, it equals nothing. And again, if this is true, even with elevated speech, What about all the speech that falls below that? What about the speech that you and I employ when we talk to others in the life of the church? Times where we talk with someone and there's a smile on our face, but our mind is very far from the person in front of us. Thinking of what it is we need to get to, thinking How can I end this conversation and move on from this person? Thinking, well, I already know what I'm going to say as I respond to them. I'm just looking for the right moment to break in. We can be polite and courteous, yet underneath it all, love can be absent. What about when we talk about others? We live in the South, right? How often people employ that time-tested phrase? Well, bless their heart. 
and what begins to proceed out of the mouth is really just grown-up gossip or slander. Things that we would never dare say to the person looking them in the eye if they were in front of us. As James himself says, with our tongue we can bless God and yet in the very next moment curse men made in the likeness of God. Friend, talk can be quite cheap. Words can be empty. That's why John will say in 1 John, let us love not just in word and in tongue, but in deed and truth. And yes, speech can be there. Even this elevated speech like the Apostle Paul portrays. And yet undetected, if love is not in the heart, as God sees right through it, speech minus love equals nothing. Second equation. Verse 2. Knowledge minus love equals nothing. Paul will now in verse 2 shift his attention to another sign gift, that of prophecy, a unique gift given by God, this ability either to foretell or forthtell. Foretell, meaning the ability where God discloses what is to come in the future and an individual is able to disclose what is to come, or foretell, the ability to look back to God's revelation and explain it and apply it, a gift of prophecy that Paul himself had, where he was given the mysteries of God, a gift even in chapter 14, Paul will elevate above the gift of tongues and say, at least with prophecy, all in the church can be edified. It can be used to strengthen the church. Now what is Paul getting at? He's simply getting at this idea, this concept of knowledge. He says, if I possess this gift, and look at what he says, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. What kind of knowledge, Paul? Oh, the knowledge that obtains and possesses all mysteries and all knowledge. Again, Paul, what, what are you getting at here? Well, two different terms are used. The first, mysteries, unique term, speaking of that which God has kept hidden, and in his timing, he reveals. Divinely revealed knowledge. Knowledge only known by revelation. You can think of it this way. It's divine, spiritual understanding. Paul says, if I possess all of that, knowledge, all mysteries. And not only that, he says, all knowledge, a term used of people gathering up for themselves this information. It's not just divine spiritual understanding, it's factual human understanding. You can think of it this way. Paul is saying, if I were a Reformation man, and a Renaissance man. Knowledge of the Bible, 
knowledge of the world, knowledge of the word, knowledge of the world. If I possessed all scripture smarts and all street smarts, and not only that, he says, if I have all faith, what kind of faith? Is he speaking of saving faith? No, he's speaking of faith of miracles, uh, the miraculous. How miraculous? Oh, this strong faith, this bold faith, he says. Again, speaking hypothetically, so as to remove mountains. Uh, A proverbial saying. Something Jesus will reference in the Gospels, that which is simply accomplishing the impossible. Someone in Corinth is looking on Paul and is saying, Oh, Paul, all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. He knows the word. He knows the world. His faith is so strong. And yet the equation, knowledge minus Love, you see what he says in verse 2, but do not have love. What is it equal? Nothing. In fact, he says, I am nothing. Not just nobody, but nothing. And again, how, how you read this, how searching is this? Not that the issue is knowledge. How often people react against this. Oh, we've lost our love. Well, let's get rid of the doctrine. Let's get rid of the truth. No, no, no. The issue isn't the truth. The issue isn't the doctrine. The issue is you and I have this amazing capacity to be that close to truth and that near divine knowledge. And yet in some way, down in the heart, this mystery of science that we can still lack love. And the danger, the danger, what Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up. And I will even again say how stripping this has been. And how stripping this ought to be for you as well. Just as this would hit the church in Corinth, so this hits you and I. You and I can have the full library. All the books. I've read the books. I recommend the books. I track the books. You can see my progress on Goodreads. I've even exceeded my goal of reading for the year. Some might even look at this and say, well, you know, I'm not rich. I may not have the best looks. I sure don't have the athletic ability, but I'll tell you what I do have. My mind. You ask, I answer. My mind is this steel trap, and you and I can place such confidence in our knowledge, walking around as if we're Encyclopedia Brown so intelligent, so knowledgeable, and how this can even be joined with what he says in verse 1, knowledge and speech, then in the life of the church, 
We walk around. We begin to get into people's lives. And instead of listening, we speak. We answer. What's your problem? Let me tell you the answer. Let me fix it for you. Without listening, we walk around and we act as if we know all and can tell the person, always teaching, always correcting, always giving my thoughts and my opinion. Walking away, oh, how helpful I was. Where would it be without my knowledge? And yet, all along, down in the heart. Love is missing. There's no real concern for that person. No real kindness. Often it's even seen by the way that we don't take time to pray for that individual. And what's the result? Paul says, I am nothing. Here's the danger. You can be the most knowledgeable and at the same time, the least loving. Speech minus love equals nothing. Knowledge minus love equals nothing. Verse 3, third and final equation. Sacrifice minus love equals nothing. Sacrifice, Paul singles it out here. He focuses his attention upon the issue of sacrifice. He will even give two different kinds of sacrifice. Great sacrifice for people, great sacrifice for God. And you can write this down. All love is self-sacrificing. But not all self-sacrifice is loving. Paul proves that. He brings up this first kind of sacrifice, great sacrifice for people. He says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. The wording is quite graphic. The imagery here, it's uh, doling out bit by bit. Paul is saying, if I were to take all that I own, all that I have, and whether it's a poor person or really anyone, and they were to line up and like the soup kitchen, ladle out my possessions one at a time. And people in Corinth look on Paul and they say, what is he doing? What sacrifice? He's stripping himself of all that he has, all to help others. Certainly gets the attention of others, Word would spread in Corinth how giving, how sacrificial. And yet there can be more that meets the eye. As Matthew Henry said, there may be an open and lavish hand where there is no liberal or charitable heart. Paul's saying even with sacrifice, you can look like a saint outside and yet be a Scrooge on the inside. Not motivated by love. Could be motivated by vanity. I want to be recognized. I want to receive the praise and applause. That's one kind of sacrifice for people. Paul gives a second kind of sacrifice. 
for God. He says, if I were to give or surrender my body, and notice your Bible will say, most likely, to be burned. Does it have, though, a little number in your Bible directing you to the margin? There's a reason for that. Very interesting textual issue that we have to briefly spend some time on. The oldest Greek manuscripts, the copies of the New Testament and specifically the copies of 1 Corinthians, the oldest witnesses actually don't use the term, give my body to be burned. Rather, a slightly different term is used, uh, just two letters different. And the term there in these oldest of witnesses is actually a term Paul uses many times in his writings. It's rather uh, that I may boast. And then studying this, I do believe this older reading and even harder reading is what Paul actually wrote here. Either way, though, if you take it that I may boast or that I might be burned, the point is the same. He's stressing great personal sacrifice. But we would simply say uh, this issue of burning by martyrdom, it actually wasn't something happening when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It comes later when Nero comes to power, then it becomes more common. Rather, I believe he's using the term that I may boast. He uses this term 35 times in his writing. Sometimes it's portrayed as a bad thing, but often with Paul, it's portrayed as a good thing. Why? Because it's done for God. Paul is saying, if I were to give up my body, rendering this great spiritual sacrifice that I may boast. We might say, boast in whom? Boast in God. Do this for God. Spend myself for him. In the language of Romans 12, 1 and 2, rendering my body as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. It could certainly include suffering. No doubt it could include martyrdom. Some even wonder, could Paul even be saying, if I were to sell my body into slavery? in order to help others. Whatever it might be, the Corinthians, just like you and I, would look upon Paul and say, Paul, what sacrifice? I mean, you put your money where your mouth is. You don't just speak it, you live it. You haven't just given up all your possessions, you've given up your own body. And yet, sacrifice without love equals nothing. Nothing. He says, it profits me nothing. There's no merit, there's no worth, there's no gain. And again, the first century world was a lot like this 21st century world. A lot of stock is put in deeds of charity and sacrifice and suffering. And yet, Paul says that even in the life of the church, where sacrifice is made by you and I, we hear of a need, a fund needs to be replenished, we give 
But are we motivated by love? Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're motivated by, I got to get that tax deduction. Here's a family in need. I sign up to bring them a meal. Oh, but the day comes. Maybe at first I was motivated by love, but chaos has ensued. The kitchen has become a mess. My kids have become creatures. The drive to the home is longer than expected. I finally drop off the meal. I'm courteous and I smile. But what is long departed from my heart? Love. We can even spend ourselves pushing our bodies to the very physical and mental limit and say we're doing it in sacrifice to our God. And yet if love is missing, Paul says it means nothing. Nothing. Quite appropriate then for John MacArthur to wrap this all up and say the loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. Three equations. How would we do on this test? And this is just life and ministry in the church. What if we were to go to life in the home? Maybe more than you and I might want to admit. This ingredient's gone missing in our lives. And yes, there are times where scripture, like a spotlight, will shine on our hearts and reveal how far we fall short. Very far beneath the perfect standard that God commands of us. But dear Christian, that's exactly why you and I are to look out and look up and see what it is that God has done to deal with that sin. How thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ and specifically to come to his table and remember what it is that he has done for us. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we prepare to observe communion. Father in heaven, we come to you And we confess that though all men are to know us, that we are your disciples by this, that our, we have love for one another. Often that love grows cold. Often that love is absent. Often we can plunge ourselves into the ministry in the church and yet be motivated by many things, but not by love. We call it what it is this morning, Lord. Your word reveals that that's sin in your eyes. 
But we then look up to you and we look to the Savior that you've provided. The one who came to pay for all of our sin. We come now to this table to remember the great sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice, where your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died upon the cross and he took upon him the punishment that our sin deserved. He rose again on the third day and he offers to us full forgiveness and a perfect righteousness that we can be saved and welcomed into your family. As Christians, we come to this table then to remember this all-sufficient, all-glorious Savior. Help us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.